Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to, to the James Bond ATZ podcast. podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. So we finished doing the letter A and now we're ready to move on to the letter B. Are you excited? Yes. Yeah, there's some nice Very. juicy ones in B. Been looking forward to this one. Definitely. As always, uh, we've got a different, uh, few different topics to talk about each week. And I will begin proceedings uh, this week by saying B is for Baker. Joe Don Baker. So um, Joe Don Baker, uh, American <laughs> actor. He was born in Texas in 1936. Uh, he's obviously an American actor and he's been in three James Bond films. He played Brad Whitaker in The Living Daylights, and then he also was Jack Wade in Goldeneye and Tomorrow Never Dies. So he sort of straddles two eras of Bond, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, he's uh, one of those. Now, he's one of those um, those few characters that's that's crossed into different characters uh, in, in the actual films, isn't he? He's, he's quite an interesting one from that point of view. Definitely, and he, he, I was about to say he actually occupies a very rare position in the in the films uh, universe. Can you guess what that rare position is? Hmm. I have no idea. No, that's intriguing. He's one of only three actors to ever play a Bond ally and a Bond villain. Ah, good, good quiz question. Yeah, but who are the others? Ooh. Um. <laughs> I'll put you out your misery. So the others are Charles Gray, and he uh, was Henderson in You Only Live Twice, and then Blofeld in Diamonds Are Forever. You've got Walter Gotel, who was Morzany, uh, the island trailer in From Russia With Love, and then also Gogol, the head of K- KGB. Of course, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so mm-hmm. he, he obviously returned many more times. And then you could also make a case for Richard Keeler's Jaws because he was an ally in one film and a villain in the other. But um, that's I don't think that's, that's, that's not a good the, enough case. That's the same character. Not, <laughs> not having that. So back to Joe Don Baker. Uh, obviously quite um, an interesting position there. But um, yeah, so he went to college uh, in, in Texas and then um, he actually graduated with a business degree, which I thought was quite interesting. But he started acting at college, uh, went on to do a tour of duty in the United States Army. And then after leaving the army, he went to New York and he basically became a, a jobbing stage actor, worked on off Broadway and lots of things. He was a really tall guy. He was six foot three. And so that made him um, quite popular for being cast as like a heavy or a villain or like a cowboy uh, he appeared in a lot of western tv series um things like bonanza gunsmoke uh, he also was in mission impossible and then in 1967 he was in the film cool hand luke have you ever seen that oh yes paul newman uh he was in a few other cowboy films but then it, it was in the 1970s that his his career really took off he, he played steve mcqueen's brother in a, a film called junior bonner by sam peckinpah um, but then he, his big film came out in 1973 and it was called Walking Tall. I don't know if either of you have ever seen that, but um, he's fantastic no. in it. And um, it was a huge hit. Uh, hit. Hit with the critics. Everyone loved his performance, but he turned down the opportunity to uh, make a sequel. 
in the early 80s, he was apparently, according to his Wikipedia page, the first actor to receive a million dollars to star in a television series. And this was for a program called I Shied, <laughs> which apparently wow. was released here as called The Chief of Detectives. Uh, Wheatley, you'll like this one. He was in the film Fletch. I do like that a lot. I, I yeah. actually do remember him in it. Yeah, good. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have remembered that one. And then in 1985, he stars as a CIA agent, Darius Jedberg, in the TV drama Edge of Darkness, directed by Martin Campbell. So this is where the Bond connection comes in. So he was directed by Martin Campbell and that actually worked with Martin Campbell a few times. Um, He actually was nominated for a BAFTA for that, but he lost the BAFTA that year to Bob Peck, who was the the lead actor, played the detective in that programme. That's a great show if you've you've never seen it. So this is obviously where he's caught the eye of the Broccolis for the James Bond films. And uh, they they cast him as Brad Whittaker for The Living Daylights, which is the Dalton's first Bond film. And he's like one of the bad guys. He's quite a funny character, I seem to remember. He's quite a ridiculous character. I actually get him mixed up in in the films that he's done because he plays a very similar character in the Brosnan Bond films and the Dalton one. Yeah, kind he's of loud like, mouth um, American. Yeah, he plays like an arms dealer, doesn't he? A self the self styled general. He sort of pretends to be like this army general, doesn't he? It's um, he's quite a funny character, and he's he's like the the Koskov's like ally in the film. Baker himself said his character was a nut who thought he was Napoleon. Uh, but he really, he, I think he was really like thrilled to get the role. He told um, the Florida, South Florida Sun, uh, he's a nice guy. He's a crazy guy. He's got weird ideas. But mostly I just wanted to be in a Bond movie. It's like Disneyland. And when someone says, do you want to go to <laughs> Disneyland? You say yes. <laughs> Which I thought was a funny quote. So he uh, shot his scenes in Tangier um, and he said when he got to set, he felt quite like an outsider. Um, But then he found that, as he says in the book, some kind of hero, he says, they're all nice people. Albert Broccoli is the father of the family just looking after his children. And my job is just to create the character, make him really dangerous and believable. And the trick to playing the villain is to sit back and think of all the awful things you could be. So then that same year, sorry, after that, he went on and, and starred in Cape Fear, the Martin Scorsese film with uh, Robert De Niro. Yeah. Uh, and then he was also, um, you'll like this, in 1995's Congo. Like yeah, it's probably one. his best work. <laughs> um, which is the Michael Crichton sci-fi film that followed after Jurassic Park. Brendan, have you ever seen that one? Uh, no, I haven't. So the same year he's in um, Congo, he gets the call again from the Broccolis to return from Go- for, for Goldeneye. This one, obviously directed by his Edge of Darkness director, Martin Campbell. Um, and this time he's playing a CIA agent, uh, Jack Wade. Um, and he said he based this character. And in fact, he got the role because they thought the character was very similar to his character in Edge of Darkness, a brass, brash CIA guy. And they thought that like the contrast between him, the CIA, the sort of the no nonsense guy and the English Secret Service agent was would be a good would be a good uh, match. And it really was. I mean, he's a great presence in that film. But I always wondered, you know, why wasn't he Felix? Because yeah, I always wondered it. that. Yeah. yeah, so this is this is interesting. Something that interesting that I learned while reading about this is that they apparently they didn't want to bring Felix back because he'd been half eaten in Licence to Kill, which was the film before, and they right. wanted to to preserve some a continuity of sorts, which I thought was really interesting because it was a it was the reboot, and so it didn't really matter. Yeah. Well, Goldeneye so, was originally meant to be Dalton, wasn't it? So it would be logical if he did continue to to do that, but they probably yeah. just just stuck with the 
the the original script format because it would probably be lighter would probably if you hadn't already written lighter into the script it'd be quite hard to shove him in because he's quite such a specific character yeah and i guess they just felt that this just gave him a bit of free reign to do something a bit different as well so Jack Wade, the character, apparently got his name from Kevin Wade, one of the writers who polished the GoldenEye script. Well, the stuff with Wade and Bond is really is quite funny. I, I think he he helps Wade, uh, he helps Bond in Russia. They've got that whole back and forth with the Rose thing. Um, yeah. uh, is that the one Jim- with the car? Yes, yeah, the, the really crappy car. car yeah. yeah, he hits with a hammer. Yeah, and he keeps mm. calling him Jimbo, doesn't he? Which I think is quite funny. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, then he he also he connects him with um, Zakovsky, the Robbie Coltrane character, and then he helps him later on get into Cuba on that uh, little tiny plane. And then Jack Wade um, Baker returned as as Jack Wade in Tomorrow Never Dies. Uh, he helps Bond to set up the the parachute jump that he does in there. But that's it. That was the last time he ever ret- appeared in the James Bond films. Um, mm. He's a really interesting character. He's, he seemed to be very sort of grateful for the opportunity. And I think it was really the Edge of Darkness stuff that really opened his, his career up to the rest of the world. He's been in a lot of stuff since. The most recent thing he's been in was um, in the 2012 film Mud with Matthew McConaughey. I don't know if you've seen that. No, no. Is it brilliant. worth seeing? It's brilliant. Yeah, it's one of his reconnaissance uh, era <laughs> films. So um, mm-hmm. very good. Yes. B is for Barry, John Barry, although technically it's Prendergast. So we'll see you when we get to P. Bye. (laughs) Um, Yeah, he was born John Barry, John Barry, John Barry Prendergast uh, in York in 1933. And he was born to a classical pianist, his mother, and his father owned a string of cinemas in Yorkshire. So... The destiny. It was like written in the stars, all, for, all from the beginning, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. He had an early career with music. He had the John Barry Seven. Just coincidence again, the number seven, 007. It's all sort of links together. His career spanned 120 um, scores for cinema and television. And I wasn't aware how much he'd done outside of Bond. Because when you think John Barry, you just think, ah, oh, Bond. But yes. Born Free... Out of Africa, Dances with Wolves, Chaplin, Ooh. award-winning scores in there that I wasn't... I mean, Born Free is a classic in its own right. Well, um, this is this is the problem with Bonds, isn't it? Overshadows a lot of people's careers and it becomes the... And we'll get... I, I'm saying that because uh, the one I'm going to talk about in a bit is quite similar. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's quite difficult for some of these people who get uh, stuck in the, the Bond world. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you did 12 Bonds. So if you do if you do twelve, you you're gonna get tarred with that brush at you know. At I some mean, no, there, there's two ways of looking at it, isn't there? The tarred with the brush, or it being your crowning achievement, right? It could just be like yeah, but he didn't he didn't yeah. want awards for it. He won one award for the the twelve bonds. So his entrance into into James Bond is because um, it was Monty Norman who wrote, and and I've got to be careful legally now <laughs> because we. <laughs> Monty Norman wrote the James Bond theme, but the the filmmakers weren't happy with it, and they wanted someone to go in and and adapt it and 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 change it. And Didn't he do Don- it on a on, just on a guitar or something like that? This may be completely wrong, but I seem to remember that he created the actual sound of the song, and then 
then then John Barry got involved with an actual orchestra. Yeah, so so Monty Norman. It was based on a on a song called "Good Sign, Bad Sign," which was for a musical. Um, so that was the basis of it. That was a late nineteen fifties tune, which he'd then adapted. And like you say, yeah, he just really basic, like the the bones of the the theme, and that's where John Barry came in to improve it. They ge- they gave him a flat fee. Of two hundred and fifty pounds, so that was in nineteen sixty-two. Any guesses on what that's worth now? Wait, as in how much two hundred and fifty quid is worth now, or how much? Yeah, two hundred and fifty quid then is worth with interest. (laughs) Ten grand. It's half of that. Five thousand three hundred and sixty-nine pounds. Wow. So you imagine you've written the James Bond theme, and that's all you're getting. So Monty Norman. Um, has accumulated over half a million uh, for his for the use of the James Bond theme, and that's because in two thousand and one, he Monty Norman took uh, the Sunday Times to court over the who wrote the theme, and he won. He won you, prob- you probably would do, wouldn't you? It's uh, you're not going to let that one go. <laughs> no, because they they claimed in an article they said that, that he didn't write the James Bond theme. So he wasn't happy about that. But, I mean, they never asked him back. They never asked Monty Norman back, but they asked John Barry back. Because it was the arrangement that he did, wasn't it? That's it was the arrangement, really. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So he put the flesh on those bones and arguably gave it the Bond sound, you know, throughout yeah. all of the, the films. I'd, I'd love to hear what he'd sent across, what the original Monty Norman song actually sounded like, if it was just... A very loose, weak version of the Bond song, or if it's actually any good. You can find a couple of uh, tracks on YouTube on um, uh-huh. what it would would have sounded like. Um, is it what is it is it on actual instruments, or is he just humming it, or <laughs> is it on a kazoo or something? Really, <laughs> five rand was actually quite good. <laughs> it's very, it's very sort of threadbare. It's not not get any of the. The, the horns or the brass, any of that. So that's the theme for Dr. No, right? So it that's must have Dr. Been... No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then he's collaborated with, after he's done 13 others, and collaborated with each artist that's done the theme tune as well, as well as doing the soundtrack for the complete movie. Very much he's interwoven into the, into the DNA of Bond because of that. Um, and then, of course, the knock-on effect is he heavily inspired David Arnold, who was a massive fan and is the only other composer that really has got it, like got the Bond sound and what it's all about. He actually said, because he, he did meet him and, and just sort of spewed all this information at John Barry that John Barry didn't know about his own career. So he was an absolutely huge fan and said that meeting him was like touching the hem of God's frock. Um, he, I found it interesting, he lived with um, Michael Caine and Terence Stamp. How fascinating. Yeah, in, in, a, in a flat in London. Um, they were very close friends, especially uh, with Michael Caine, who was the first person in the world to hear Goldfinger. Wow. I bet, he liked it. I bet he liked it the first time, but after 11 o'clock on a Saturday <laughs> night, John, <laughs> well, turn he it down. He did say, I was the first person in the world to hear Goldfinger, and I heard it all night. So you can tell <laughs> that he has just played it over and over and over again. But speaking of Michael Caine, he also did, uh, John Barry also did the score for the Ipcrest file. Uh, so, yes. Uh, it's, 
which John Barry preferred. John Barry preferred that film to to the Bond films because he he thought it was a more genuine and honest portrayal of a spy. So he also almost died in 1988. So he was he had a toxic reaction to a health potion. Yeah, All right, health potion. And it doesn't say what health potion. I, I tried to find out what it was, but it's just some sort. It's off. It got taken off the market because it was dangerous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that left him out of um, unable to work for two years. Oh my god! Because of that, because he had to have lots of surgery, um, and it's the reason why the last score he did for Bond was *The Living Daylights*, because he was unable to do *License to Kill* because he was recovering from throat surgery. Oh, what a shame. Mm. Uh, but he did come back uh, in 1990 and do the Dances with Wolves score, which was critically acclaimed. So that's there's, there's a good good ending to that story. The last film he scored was Enigma in 2001. Great film. Really good film. Direct, directed by which other Bond director? Oh, good question. John Glenn? No. Spottiswood? My, oh, nearly. Michael Apted. Oh, close. Yeah. Produced um, by Mick Jagger, Enigma was. Was it really? Yeah, fun fact for you. It it's stars uh, Douglas... What's his name? The Scottish actor. Yeah, the the Wolverine guy. The guy that didn't get Wolverine. The one that... Or Bond, because he was also in the frame to get Bond when Craig oh, got what it. What was his name? Douglas Campbell? No, let's look it up. You carry on, Brendan. I'll carry on. <laughs> so his, I mean, his sound has influenced so much, and something I'd completely forgotten: "Millennium" by Robbie Williams uses the "You Only Live Twice," which I'd I'd completely forgotten. I don't think John Barry was completely happy about that because although he made a lot of money, he said uh, that Robbie asked for permission, got granted permission, and said it would be a snippet. <laughs> However. It's pretty much the whole song. <laughs> so he wasn't too too happy about that. Um, but he did. there is a quote as well. He, he said about Robbie Williams, I wouldn't know Robbie Williams if I fell over him, which I think is a, a nice <laughs> burn from John Barry. Um, burn. And Kanye West obviously used uh, Diamonds Are Forever uh, for his song Diamonds as well. Um, so it's, it's a legacy that John Barry has that, sort of extends from the Bond universe into the wider world of music. Mark Ronson appears to be a huge fan as well. Um, he said, John Bar- Barry has influenced not just me, but everyone from early Wu-Tang Clan to Portishead. A song like Glory Box is pure John Barry. When Amy Winehouse and I were asked to do a Bond theme, even though it didn't happen in the end, it made me listen to Barry's work in more depth. Now, that made me sad, thinking what that could have been. That, an Amy Winehouse Bond theme... Oh, what could have been, yeah. That would have been excellent. I heard that that, that that was happening, wasn't it? And they started work on it. Is that like... Yeah, yeah. Oh, how interesting. I don't. I mean, would it have been 2008? Would it have been Quantum of Solace? Yeah. Oh, that would have been a, a, a good one for Quantum of Solace. Join mm. us on episode W to find out more. I, I, I turned it off after the opening titles. <laughs> um, yeah, so he... Passed away in 2011 from a heart attack. He, he lived in New York and he had an excellent career. It wasn't all good, though. He did say 
Look at what I've done. Sure, I did Howard the Duck and a few other turkeys, but most films I chose were exactly the right ones. So he only did Howard the Duck because it was George Lucas, and he thought, I mean, what can go wrong? It's funny that everyone uses Howard the Duck as their example of this is a bad thing I did, but it probably gets mentioned more than any other film because of that. The thing is, there's so many great people working on it. What happened? There was a lot of weird mistakes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Do Gray Scott was the man in Enigma. Do Gray Scott, yes. Uh, also starred Kate Winslet, Saffron Burroughs. John Barry, though, he's a legend. He goes in the Hall of Fame, I reckon. I mean, definitely he's in a lot of Hall of Fames, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Genuinely as well, yeah. But I'm sure he we will talk about him again um, going forward. Because well, if he did 12 themes, like he's going to be on every single one of those, isn't he? Yes. He's going to be well well woven. B is for Bassey. Dame Shirley Bassey. Obviously, Shirley Bassey. Fairly important in the world of Bond. But a hell of a lot happens in Shirley Bassey's life. So going through into massive detail about who she is and her whole illustrious musical history is probably going to be a little bit too much for this podcast. So I'm going to go into a bit about her, but then I'm going to focus on the Bond song she did and how her career has shaped Bond and how her uh, Bond has been shaped by her career. Dame Shirley Veronica Bassey, born 8th of January 1937 in Cardiff, Wales. She came from quite a poor family originally. Her, she's half Nigerian, half English. And when she was young, her father went to jail for sexual um, conviction with children. Mm, which she wow. probably didn't know. Ah, yeah, did I found that know. quite interesting. She actually, she's got quite a quite a difficult life actually that you probably a lot of people probably don't know about because she's so famous for the music and stuff. But um, when she was sixteen, she had a kid, and the kid was given to her sister to look after, and the kid didn't know that Shirley was her mum until it was nine years old. Wow. Yeah, another interesting one. She had a second daughter um, who died in 1985, um, seemingly from drowning, accidental drowning. But in 2009, um, in an interview, Shirley talked about how that she wasn't quite sure that was the case. And in 2010, there was an investigation by the police into information received that um, there was a convicted killer associated with it. But that there was no evidence, evidence for that. And the case never continued. Not a happy home life. She married twice to Kenneth Hume and Sergio Novak. Both marriages ended in divorce. She didn't marry after those two. And I think that was that was quite a while ago. So she's not been married for a long time. She's had a hell of a lot of songs and albums and live shows. 37 studio albums, six live albums, 21 compilation albums. 19 EPs and 105 singles Wow! <laughs> over a very long period of time. Her career has kind of been defined by peaks and troughs from the 1950s until I think there's actually a new album that's just being released that she's done. Um, it's on so, Spotify now. Is it? Have you been listening mm. to it? I've not listened to it yet. <laughs> I have been listening to the back catalogue, but I've not moved on to the newest one yet. Um <laughs> So yeah, she's done a lot of songs, a lot of music. Um, she has had a lot of success, won dozens of awards in the UK 
and the US. But the thing that she's most famous for, for most people, I imagine pretty diehard Shirley Bassey fans probably have a favourite song, but for the widespread world of Shirley Bassey listeners, it's probably Bond songs that she's most famous for. Specifically Goldfinger, but then you've got Dimes Are Forever and Moonraker later on. And there are some other songs that she's done in association with Bond, which we'll go into in a bit. Uh, but let's start with Goldfinger. So it's got to number eight in America, which is the highest she's ever been in America. Um, and it was the num- and Goldfinger was the number one album. Uh, she got to tw- only got to twenty one in the UK charts with Goldfinger, which you'd probably expect to to be a bit higher. She got involved in singing Goldfinger because John Barry asked her to you know, sing the song, get involved in it. Previously, he'd worked on a conductor at her live shows as well as had a romantic relationship with her for Goldfinger. She is said to never take a song or never agree to to sing a song unless she's seen the lyrics to that song first. However, in Goldfinger, she heard the instrumental of it, said she got goosebumps and decided to do it off the back of that. Mm. The power of John Barry. Possibly slightly to do with John Barry as well <laughs> the song goldfinger uh is actually credited with um being produced by george martin and john barry because george martin was her producer at the time but apparently in the recording sessions there were also barry vick flick jimmy page and big jim sullivan who were all there as she was recording uh the, the goldfinger uh, song uh, interesting point to note about goldfinger the final note um, a Goldfinger, which you may remember being quite a long, drawn-out note. Um, she said at the time that she nearly passed out doing it because John Barry was waving at her saying, keep going, keep going. Um, <laughs> and she also had to take off her bra to do it because it was such a difficult note to sing. Don't we all? <laughs> um, and uh, as you've mentioned before, Brendan, Saltzman didn't like that song. Mm. He... Um, he actually he said of the song that that's the worst song I've ever heard in my life. He actually threw uh, a couple of swear words in that sentence as well. But he also didn't like Dimes Are Forever. Wasn't very keen on that at all. And when she came to do it, they got her on... Uh, well, they, she, he said that quite late on. So they couldn't get anyone else to, to take up the, the song. So they had to stick with it. But yeah, Saltzman, not a fan of Bassie's music. Did he ever say why? Uh, just didn't like it. I, I think he just. Uh, I think I think he wanted something else from it. Although there is a bit of a story behind uh, "Dimes Are Forever" um, and why he didn't like that song. Moving on from Goldfinger, Thunderball. Now Thunderball, originally, Shirley Bassey produced a song for Thunderball called Nev- uh, M- uh, "Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang," which was the name that an Italian journalist had given James Bond in an article he'd written um, around the film's release. Um, Dion Warwick also recorded a version of Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Neither of them were used on the film because before the film was released, they decided that every Bond song has to have the title of the film in the song. So they got Tom Jones to do it. And um, the songs were actually never released until quite a lot later. I think it was the 90s that both of those versions were released so they just didn't exist until then but the music or the instrumental score to Mr Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is used quite a lot throughout the film but 
has nothing to do with Shirley Bassey. And, and Tom Jones did actually faint singing Thunderball. So he, he one-upped Bassey. <laughs> he always does, doesn't he? He <laughs> always ones up everyone. Um, and another interesting fact about um, Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is that Alan Korb, a German singer, um, he sang a version of Thunderball for uh, of Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and Thunderball for the German release of the film called Furball. I don't know if that's how to pronounce it, but that's the, that's that was the name it's given Germany. And his version of Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was actually used in the German film. So the foreign version of the film was the only one to actually feature that song, and the other and the uh, UK US versions didn't get released until. A long time afterwards. Wow, mm. that's interesting. Moving on, Dimes Are Forever. Obviously, um, Shirley Bassey was brought back to do a second um, Bond song, which and she's actually the only singer to do multiple um, songs for Bond, Bond um, films. And when the film was created, um, apparently John Barry told Shirley to sing as if she was singing about a penis. And the <laughs> co-writer on... <laughs> Yeah, the co-writer on the song, Don Black, um, was a bit annoyed and quoted in the Times in 2008 saying John Barry had actually told him he was singing about diamonds. So he was a bit confused about the the link up of the song. But um, if you listen back to Diamonds Are Forever, you can get the feel of that from Shirley. Um, Moonraker's an interesting one. (laughs) Moonraker's an interesting one. So the third song that uh, Shirley Bassey got brought back for, Moonraker, uh, was originally meant to be sung by... A number of different people who were approached by it. Frank Sinatra was on the list to do it. Johnny Mathis and even Kate Bush. And they all pulled out because they had other things going on or um, weren't happy with the song itself. So Shirley was brought on quite last minute to do it. And because of that, she never really regarded it as her own song. Dimes Are Forever, obviously, she uses all the time for everything. She actually, I think one of her books is called that or one of our albums is called Dimes Are Forever so she very rarely sings that song when you go and see her at a stage show or something Goldfinger Dimes Are Forever always always banging them out Moonraker very rarely does it and there's only a few occasions where she's been seen to do it live on stage uh, Hal David wrote the um, song Moonraker but also wrote the lyrics to all We Have All Time in the World from A Magic Secret Service. Mm. So that's an interesting link between those two songs, which I would never have, have, have imagined. And also, interestingly, there are two versions of Moonraker. The start of the film has the, the version that we all know, and at the end, there's a kind of disco version of Moonraker, which isn't quite as well known. Okay, so they're the three main Bond songs that, that um, Shirley Bassey's done. Her career has, since that point, kind of quite heavily been defined by Bond and in the 90s I know you remember this Butler quite heavily is that she had a bit of a renaissance she was starting to work with a lot more more people including David Arnold who did a lot of stuff on an album called Shaken and Stirred there's a song that is rumoured to have been made for Quantum of Solace called No Good About Goodbye Um, but that room is actually false. It was never actually written for Quantum of Solace or meant to be in it. It was a song, apparently, that David Arnold and Shirley Bassey were working on before the film, and he used some of the sound from it in the film itself and then mm. picked up the song again with Shirley after after the film. So um, 
bit of a common misconception there that people thought that that song was actually made for the film and then wasn't wasn't used. Um, I've seen songs... it put over the um, the titles for Quantum of Solace, wrongly so now, but it actually really fits with the the style. Yes, it... Yeah. yeah, definitely. I mean, if you listen to a lot of Shirley Bassey's back catalogue, a lot of it does sound like it should be on a yeah. Bond, Bond film. Yeah. And, um, is that, that's is that probably... rich sort of sweeping strings? I guess it's very sort of John Barry-esque, isn't it? And her her voice just, just matches those songs perfectly, doesn't she? Well, it's it's a lot of people probably think that her sound um, in the later um, years after after Bond is as a result of Bond, but she did actually sound like that before with a lot of songs and obviously working with John Barry before and, and things like that. It's just a sound that she had and that that, that she's kind of adopted uh, from the start of her career. But but a lot of her songs would work very well as, as Bond songs. And um, I think there was a point where they were talking about bringing her back for another one, but um, it never, never actually happened. Other songs that uh, we've talked before about, Kanye West uses it for his Diamonds for Sierra Leone quite obviously um and she she's released quite a lot of bond she tried to release quite a lot of bond stuff after the, the bond films uh, that she worked on were released one album was called the bond collection um which she was working on where she actually did covers of all the bond songs not just the ones that she did but that never got released she well it never it was never meant to be released because she didn't want it to be released but the um record labels without her say so released a version of it um, around the 1990s um, and she had a big court case with them to get it removed. So there are CDs of that that exist, but they're very, very Ooh. rare and you can't find it anywhere. So if you can I'd find like... one of those, probably worth a lot of money. Uh, and there was actually another one of those called Bassey Sings Bond, uh, which again wasn't released because it got pulled at the last minute. But there is a version of You Only Live Twice that she did that you can find, which is very good. You can get it and find it on YouTube. So yeah, aside from that, don't call Shirley Bassey a belter. She doesn't like being called a belter. She says, um, I hate the word. It's an awful word. I don't like belting. Belting is disrespectful, you know. I'm Only my kind of singer is accused of belting. You don't say that to opera singers. I don't belt. That's just my voice. Because a lot of people I will mean, say, she, that's a belter. She, she does belt out Goldfinger. Let's, let's she does be belt clear. out Goldfinger. <laughs> but don't say that to her. Just no. don't you dare Christ's sake don't say that to her um, Shirley, Shirley Bassey, Bassey. big, Dame big Shirley in the Bassey. Bond world and I mean we've barely touched the surface with her actual life I've just kind of covered the Bond stuff, stuff but um, yeah. we'll cover the she? songs in more detail I guess won't we in the in the individual film episodes so she's 80 something 83 and still making albums legend <laughs> B is for Bezik, Martine Bezik. She was born on the 26th of September 1941 in Port Antonio, Jamaica. Uh, Martine Bezik is an actor who has appeared in two James Bond films. Uh, she first appeared as the fiery gypsy girl Zora in From Russia With Love. And then later as Paula Kaplan in Thunderball. Thunderball? Thunderball. Um, obviously that was at sort of the peak of Bond mania in the 60s. So she was like right in the thick of it in that time. 
So there's a long-standing rumour that uh, Martine Bezik also appears as a dancing girl in the opening credits of Doctor No, but she's refuted that many times. We're not sure where that rumour has come from, but that's um, completely not true. However, she did audition for the role of Honey Rider in Doctor No. Um, obviously the role went to Ursula Andress uh, she got on famously with director Terence Young uh, they got on really well he just decided that she was too inexperienced to play Honey Rider because obviously that's the big Bond girl in the first film isn't it right so told her she was too inexper- inexperienced and told her to go away and get more experience which she did um, to her credit um, and she returned for casting for From Russia With Love and so she landed a role in that although she appears in From Russia With Love. It's a very minor role. And unfortunately, the the, the credits <laughs> incorrectly list her name as Martin Bezik. So her name's Martine, but uh, she's listed as Martin. So, um, <laughs> um, so she played the fiery gypsy girl. Obviously, you know this scene very well. Um, and obviously, it links onto someone you're going to be speaking about in a minute, uh, Brendan, yeah. I believe. Um, but so she was due to shoot this fight scene uh, in Turkey on location fighting against these, um, the other character, actress name, uh, actor's name, Eliza Gurr. Uh, they decided to shoot the scene, um, the fight scene, actually in the UK on a soundstage just because the weather was too bad in Turkey in the end. Uh, and they practised the fight, rehearsed the fight for three weeks. And actually, it's a really great scene when you watch it. It's, it's all shot in sort of handheld, very close up. Um, and it's quite an interesting fight scene. It actually... From what I understand from reading about it, there was actually quite a quite a lot of tension between the two actors because they they actually go really really go for it in the fight if you watch it back. Um, and apparently there was a rivalry bet- between the two because of Martine's friendship with Terence. She got on really well with the director. He treated her really well on set. Um, and I think that um, yeah that just wound up this uh, the other lady uh, Eliza and. Um, in an interview, uh, Martine said, I didn't get on with her. She was difficult, let's put it that way. And they both <laughs> actually ended up hurting each other in the fight. <laughs> when oh, they were really? Shooting it. Yeah, apparently so. Wow. In an interview that I read with a website called Bondorama, she said, she was not a sister. Let me put it, let me just put it that way. I have a lot of fantastic women in my life who are my sisters. This one, no way. <laughs> so that's a nice little insight <laughs> for when you watch didn't that fight Didn't we see back. her at an event a while back? So I was going to say that we she does turn up a lot on the on the circuit of conventions and yes she was at when we went to see Honor Majesty's Secret Service yes. at the BFI she was one of the Bond girls in that audience there she's very distinctive because obviously she's got a Jamaican accent so yeah so from after from Russia with Love Terence Ke- Terence Young t- true to his word um, uh, said he was happy to work with her again and he was very keen for her to return for Thunderball for a much bigger role this time as Paula Kaplan and and she's Bond's contact in the Bahamas. And so as a Jamaican native, Martine obviously was a natural fit for this role. And so Terence Young really, really fought hard for her to get the role. Uh, and it was Harry Saltzman um, who was very against the idea of her returning. Uh, this is the quote uh, that she said that Harry said about using Bond girls more than once. We don't have the same one twice. They're all Kleenex. You throw them out. He's, um, uh, he so- likes to object oh. to these, doesn't he, Saltzman? <laughs> <laughs> he's always sticking his oar in so Terence Young he really fought for her to get the part she she landed it um, They she was told though that she was too thin and too pale to play an islander and so she was on strict instructions that when she got to the Bahamas that she had to do a lot of sunbathing and to eat a lot and though this is really interesting and we'll speak a lot about this when we get to Terence Young on his episode but Terence Young who directed obviously quite a few of the early Bond films 
uh, was quite a raconteur. He was um, quite quite a gentleman, quite a party man. Um, and so um, they basically chartered an entire plane to take the crew to Nassau in the Bahamas. Um, and the shoot, shoot just sounds like a complete dream. They were drinking champagne, eating caviar. Martin said, we had tables under the coconut trees. It was not a box lunches or a little rubbish stuff. It was all laid out. This was in an interview with MI6HQ. He said, we had the best wines and the best meals. We were invited everywhere. We lived the Bond life. Whatever we were shooting is what we were living. So, um, I mean, this is just at the height of Bond extravagance yes. uh, in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And also helped apparently because Kevin McClory, obviously, again, who we'll go into in great detail in a later episode, but he was the new producer on, on the scene and he knew the islands very well. And so he was taking them to all the best places to eat and drink. There was uh, Martine, there was obviously um, Claudine Auger, who was the other Bond girl, Sean Connery and his wife, and they were all just all got on famously. So in the film, uh, you might remember that um, Paula Kaplan, she helps Bond, but is later then captured and commits suicide before giving up any information. Obviously, it's quite a sad ending for her. So it's only a small uh, contribution she made to the Bond world, but... Um, like I said, she she continues to contribute through conventions and interviews and stuff. There's a lot of interviews where they're online if you want to watch them. Mm-hmm. So Bezik got to go to the premiere when the film was finished. Um, and a fun fact for you, it was the first premiere that Desmond Llewellyn had been invited to. Mm-hmm. Um, so he'd been treated quite poorly up to that point, And then he was sort of brought into the fold at that point. Um, and uh, also at the premiere for the film was Tanya Mallet and Honor Blackman from Goldfinger. So it was a real Bond extravaganza, this mm-hmm. film. I mean, Imagine Thunderball is, I mean, it's the one that really, it's the, it's the highest grossing Bond film ever. It is the um, obviously the one that came after the best golfing, the best Bond film ever, Goldfinger, and so. Mm. But interestingly, uh, can you guess who wasn't at the premiere for Thunderball? Uh, Sean Connery. Sean Connery did not turn up to the premiere. Film had two premieres, and he didn't turn up to either. Um, and obviously, this was at the start of his sort of. You know, growing distant from the mm. films, so uh, that's that, I thought it was quite an interesting fact. But yeah, so after after Bond, um, Martin went to star in One Million Years BC uh, with Rachel Welsh. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, she also did a lot of Hammer films. She was in a film called Prehistoric Women. So she did a lot of films in bikinis, basically. Yep. And then most famously, she was the lead in a film called Doctor Jekyll and Sister Hyde, a really famous uh, Hammer film as well. But uh, she's got a real. She had, Bond was at the very start of her career. She's got a really long um, career in horror films, Hammer films specifically. Um, and yeah, she's very present on the on, on the convention scene, and a, a real joy to hear talk about Bond as well. She's very. Um, she looks back on those times very fondly, and so it's good to hear. She's also, fun fact, not very keen on the term Bond. No, she's very she's keen on the term Bond girls. She doesn't like the people calling them Bond women. She thinks it's stupid. Ah, oh. um, so there we go. Depending on what side of the fence you fall on, I think it just <laughs> I think it just speaks from her being from a different era. But there, there we have it. So that is Martine Bezik. B is for Bay. Kareem Bay. Um, so Kareem Bay is a character in From Russia With Love, uh, the 1963 film. And Kareem Bay is the head of British Secret Services Station T, which is in Istanbul. So essentially, he is Turkey's answer to Bond. So his personality is very similar. He is an ally and a loyal friend to Bond. His interests, beautiful women... So he's got the, the same 
weakness, as it were, I guess. Smoking, drinking, which means that they've got so much in common that they, they get on very well. Um, and even the, the humour, the, the, you know, the way they, they deliver lines and, and just the way they go about the whole task in hand, but still taking it seriously. So much like a, a Turkish Bond. Played by the actor, Mexican film actor, Pedro Armendariz. I'm hoping that's, that's as close as I can get to getting it right pronunciation, I think. Um, and he was actually one of the best-known Latin America movie stars of the 1940s and 50s. He's done loads of of uh, Latin America films. But during From Russia With Love, which is actually his last film, so you can see if you, you watch it throughout, he's, he's visibly limping in most scenes. Um, so during the filming, he was actually terminally ill uh, with cancer. Um, God. Yeah. So towards the end of the actual shoot, he was too ill to perform uh, his part. So they... They brought a lot of his scenes forward in terms of the schedule uh, to get it done. But some of the scenes that they didn't manage to get to get done, or he wasn't uh, fit enough to do so, Terence Young actually stepped in, the director, um, as an extra and the body double for the character. Mm, that's but that's, that, that's uncredited, so it wouldn't come up at the, yeah. at the end after the film. Um, sadly, he died four months before the actual release of the film, so never got to see the film. Um, he took his own life uh, by shooting himself in the chest with a gun that he'd smuggled into a hospital. Wow. So um, wow. Uh, clearly the pain had become too much um, with the illness. He's buried in Mexico City. He was only 51 years old when he died. Um, and the, the Bond connection carries on because his son, Pedro Armandares Jr., appeared in Licence to Kill as President Hector Lopez. Ah, um, amazing. So that's that's where it all intertwines. Uh, the, the actual character, Kerim Bay, you'll recall, gets uh, stabbed by Red Grant. Yep. While they're I being held hostage. That. Yeah. And so that's, that's, uh, that's what there is on Kerim Bay. So very... Um, it was a short... Short-lived character, but I think it's um, very memorable. Also uh, is a character in the From Russia With Love video game that was released in the early noughties. Um, very good. So yeah, that is uh, Kerim Bay. B is for Billington. Michael Billington. Now, Michael Billington, as you may or may not know, is probably one of the biggest kind of it's almost like an urban legend of bond in that he's he's so integral to the history of bond in that he's been involved with so much of it but he really hasn't done a great deal in terms of actual bond films he has been in one i'll get to that in a minute he was born in um blackburn in lancashire in 1941 died 3rd of june 2005 he is an actor who's kind of his career is largely around kind of secondary roles he has had a few larger roles mainly in things that i haven't seen um but he's he kind of he got into acting by pure chance um, because he had a lot of speeding tickets and he asked his sister for money to pay for the speeding tickets and she said you can only have some if you help me out at the amateur dramatic society where he <laughs> 
where he found an interest in acting and uh, never looked back. So he's famous for doing seven screen tests for James Bond films. And that's, um, and his involvement with Bond started in, well, when uh, Under Magic Secret Service was being casted. As and Bond. So he tested for Bond. He didn't test for Bond in Under Magic Secret Service. He did a photo uh, shoot, I think, for it. But I don't think he's mm. actually screen tested until later. So the head of production, Bud Ornstein, who was working on Under Magic Secret Services, saw him in stand-up and thought he might be good for Bond. So he kind of got him involved in it. Didn't go very far. Um, he, he did some photo shoots, but then obviously George Lazenby got the role, which is interesting since he was probably more qualified than Lazenby at the time to, to do it. As his career progressed, he moved on to kind of doing screen tests for, for various other films. He was in talks to do Diamonds Are Forever when Connery was leaving, but then obviously Connery came back. And then he was meant to um, screen test for Moonraker, which was originally meant to be filmed after Diamonds Are Forever, but then got moved for uh, Live and Let Die. So in Live and Let Die was his first proper screen test, apparently. And that's where he actually got involved and, and did a screen test, um, but never actually kind of um, ne- never got the role because obviously Roger Moore did. But apparently he was he screen tested for Live and Let Die. Um, and he actually got to the point where his agent had said he was imminently going to be offered the role. So he always thought he, he was he was going to get it. It was just he was a shoo-in to get it. But then he found out quite late on Roger Moore had it. So once again, disappeared, didn't um, didn't get that role. He was floating around for a while. He um, at the time when Moore was doing for your eyes only, Moore was going to leave. Rumours are that he wanted a lot more money for it. And um, he could be said, like, we're not going to pay you it. But with Octopussy coming up, um, Never Say Never Again was being released as well. So at that point, they said, look, if we can't go up against Sean Connery with a new guy because he's going to beat us. So they got Roger Moore back in and said, we need Roger Moore back. Probably paid him loads of money to do it. So once again, didn't, didn't get the role again. So still floating around. That continued. Uh, for Moonraker, he actually went and had a meal with Broccoli's family, Lois Childs and John Glenn. Next day, got sent home from whatever country they were in doing doing the uh, screen tests. Didn't happen there. The final time he got the chance was Octopussy, where um, he got there, did another screen test. Roger Moore said he's gonna he's gonna stay for longer. And um, at that point, that's it. He gave up. That was his last last chance at trying to do, <laughs> try, trying to get involved. Quite a lot of films that he, he tried to get involved with. But interestingly, some some facts around uh, his kind of obsession with Bond and getting involved in it. He starred in a film called KGB: The Secret Wars, and he beat Timothy Dalton to get that role. <laughs> Apparently, according to him. Um, the only reason I got the role over Timothy, by the way, is I didn't ask for as much money as him. <laughs> so he's quite, quite happy, quite obviously um, pleased with that one. Also, he said about Octopussy when he didn't get the role. Uh, with all the will in the world, I couldn't quite see myself dressed as a circus clown clutching a Fabergé egg. So he did. That was his bow wow. out comment about never getting a, a James Bond role again. But probably the most interesting link 
that he's got to bond, aside from all the screen tests, all the meetings he had with various people, is the fact that he had an eight-year relationship with Barbara Broccoli. And, ah. and never got a bond role, even even with that. Even so I don't then. know if that was... The amount of effort this guy's putting in, and still... <laughs> eight never, years never wasted. It's, he's got to be annoyed, hasn't he? Um, yeah. So, yeah. All of that time spent trying to to get that role and, and working on it, and many points of his career, people were thinking he was a shoe in. Um, so he spent he spent that time screen testing to try and oust Roger Moore, basically. Pretty much. Well, it's he was involved with three bonds, wasn't he? He um, he he was from the point of George Lazenby to to Roger Moore. He was he was always there, sitting behind. And at certain points, he was kind of thought he was definitely going to get it. But um, yeah. Uh, and then in- interesting the that they always, interesting that they always having people in the sidelines. So if the actors do get like too big for their boots, they can always say, "Well, Billington's just waiting in the hallway." Well, like, that's interesting. Ready. With with Roger Moore, <laughs> they actually used it as a as a ploy to get him to stay or to get him to do stuff as they wanted because they'd say, um, "Roger, if if you if you keep doing this, we'll just get Billington and he's cheaper." <laughs> oh, poor old Billington, just on the end of a phone. Can you come in, Michael? <laughs> We, yeah, we're gonna screen test you. Come in, come in. Roger come, Moore's just, just saying, looked at. Yeah. You think it? You <laughs> just, think just he would have this door? Let's just screen test. <laughs> and Roger's there going, wait a minute. <laughs> you think he would have learnt around like uh, spy who loved me, wouldn't you? Going, oh, do I answer this call? Oh, I haven't got time for this. But no, he kept yeah, but going. He had, to, he, just... he had to answer the call because it was his father-in-law. Well, yes, I don't know at the time. I don't know if that was at <laughs> the same time. Um, <laughs> he, he had to. Yeah. So, uh, and then aside from that, his his roles have been fairly. I mean, he was in. He was a big. He was a main character in UFO. I don't know if you've uh, ever seen or heard of US, UFO, but that was um, Jerry and Jerry Anderson um, show that uh, I've never seen. But Puppets. Saltzman apparently spoke to live it. action. Uh, live action. Live action. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and apparently he, the character that he played, Colonel Foster, in in that series, he based on a sort of embryonic James Bond. He said, I'm "Not sure what that means." I mean, everything everything this guy does is got something to do with Bond. He's just give it a rest. It's not Bond. Just leave it. But yeah, he's uh, he's he's not the he was in the Professionals a couple of times. He did a lot of bit parts in in, in various TV shows and and things like that. Uh, and he also starred in a few US things, but didn't do particularly well over there. But wait, They're you said he was in was. a Bond film. Ah, yes. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> I, I, so he was in a Bond film. He got a phone call from Cubby Broccoli uh, before Spyro Love Me, who said, look, I've got a role for you in the new <gasps> Bond film. He probably is. <laughs> Whoa, here we go. Right, yeah. <laughs> right, where do I start? Um, the role was as... Uh, Russian agent, uh, prize for anyone who knows the name. No, no. Sergei Barsov. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. It's on the tip of my he tongue. He was uh, agent, agent Triple X's uh, suitor, male friend uh, at the start of the opening sequence of the film, uh, which you'll remember uh, chases Roger Moore uh, across the the snow tip mountains before he he jumps off with his famous famous Union Jack. Um, parachute, but um, he, he he was actually quite pleased with that role. He said at the time that he was he he knew that if he took that role, it was probably not going to help him in trying to get the Bond role. But said, "Why not? 
I'll take what I can at this point. And um, yeah, he still tried after that. Yeah, he still got, got another call. What now? What now? Although, to be honest, if I was speaking to could be broccoli and Saltzman, and there was a chance I'd get bombed, I'd probably keep going just for it because that seems That's to be true. the case with most bonds, doesn't it? That they probably have this. I imagine well, there's, there's stories with all these bonds where they go, yeah, I went here that day and I had dinner with him and no. Well, Brosnan was due to take over, yeah. wasn't he? Um, when Dalton, before Dalton, he was due to take over from, from Roger Moore and and they just decided he was too young at the time and then he just bided his time and he was there yeah. waiting in the wings Got when the his TV there's got a, contract ended. There's got to be a lot of, lot of male actors out there that have probably spent a lot of time waiting in the wings. I, I would say that most actors, male actors at some point, will have screen tested for Bond. If they were yeah. white, British, male, then they probably at some point in their career, even now, I think, I'm sure they must screen test for things all the time. Yeah. yeah. But poor old Michael Billington. What a, what a story. Absolute yeah. hero. Well, yep, thanks for listening. That's uh, another episode. Uh, Join us again next time. We've got more um, entries under B. Uh, Next time we'll be talking about Morris Binder, Don Black, Howard Jack Bloom, BMW, the car, Mm -hmm. and uh, Willie Bogner Jr. And finally, someone you may have heard of, James Bond. But it's not Mm. quite what you think. So learn more about that next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Ingramels and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly.